0: Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. It's so fun to sing to you, so glorious to know that you are our Savior. Thank you that we can fill our lungs and sing. No matter what the world thinks, even in difficult times, we want to sing because you commanded us to do that. You commanded us to make joyful noise to you, Lord, to have melody in our hearts, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Lord. And Lord, we speak to one another when we sing. We're We stimulate one another with truth. And so, Lord, what a blessing to sing praises to you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. You sent your son to fulfill all of these covenants and offerings and sacrifices completely in him. Uh, And we praise you for that. But we thank you that you are paving the road for him through the Old Testament. We find great encouragement as we study our Old Testament text, seeing the promise of one who will fulfill every offering, every sacrifice, every lamb, all the bloodshed would end with Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to see him clearly as we study tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you study your Bible, it's very clear that God desires restoration. He does... He, he does not want his children to have sin in between them and him. Now, I said that very carefully. He does not want his children to have sin that breaks fellowship with him. He's always about restoring fellowship, always about restoring a right relationship. You find that from all the way from Genesis, all the way through the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, we see so many Uh, offerings and covenants given so that they would have this restored fellowship. And as we look at these offerings tonight, I want to remind you, because many of them are not uh, the Day of Atonement. They're offerings when there has been sin unintentionally or intentionally. God is desiring for His people, the ones that truly love Him. And there were plenty of Old Testament saints at times in Israel who did love God and did this from their heart. So he's always seeking restoration to bring those people back to him in a right relationship as they wait for the coming of the Savior. So when you read these Old Testament offerings and you work your way through the, through the Pentateuch, you have to keep that in mind. He doesn't want them to drift away, so he's constantly giving them opportunity to get back to him. Boy, that curses my heart, because I remember reading through these you know, Leviticus and getting kind of lost and going, oh, I don't know if I can get through this book. But when you look at this as a gracious God, who desires relationship with his people individually and corporately, you begin to understand this is a gracious work of God. Every one of these offerings, God is showing his grace to people. Now, restoration is huge to God. He loves restoration. He commands us in Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 2. He says, brethren, that's us, even if one is caught in a trespass, that's willful sin, who are spiritual, Restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, that you will not be tempted yourself, but bear one another's burdens, and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. So law and restoration go together, even in the New Testament. So He's always about restoring. And as you study your Bible, you'll find confidence that this is what God wants. He wants restoration. That's why you, you and I, as New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, we can uh, go through times of of sinful. Uh, disobedience to God and God is searching us out seeking us out to restore that relationship and he's provided that final offering through the Lord Jesus Christ so we can regain that sweet fellowship that he desires with us now as we start chapter 5 we are actually seeing him finish the details of the sin offering that was given in chapter 4 if you look at your Bible, many times they put the heading of what's going on in the passage, but it may not come till, till later. So now he's going to talk about your heading probably in your Bible, like mine says the law of guilt offering or trespass offering. But that doesn't really start till about verse 14 in here. He's still cleaning up things from the sin offering, and so he's going to flow to those. But what he's going to deal with as he, as he gets to the guilt offering and trespass offering and finish up these sin offerings is he wants to look at the private sin often of the of the follower of God of this person of God who he wants this relationship, and he wants that taken care of. He wants that um, taken care of through these these um, sacrifices. How they come to him. So, so you see that. Sin, when he's going to remind us, as we see this, sin's a great offense of God, but he wants it atoned for. He wants to restore that person, whether the sin was public. There are some public sins in here, or whether it was private. He wants that restoration. And I love this thought. I thought about this today. God's grace is really old. But I don't say that in a bad way. Like, sometimes you say, wow, you're old. That's a negative. <laughs> Your kid's like, dad, you're old. No, his grace is old, isn't it? And the thing about His grace is it doesn't grow old in a way. It's just been around, and it never changes. And you have to remember that when you say your Old Testament. This is the same God, the same grace that He dispenses on us. He is dispensing on His people in a unique way as as they wait for the coming of the Messiah. His goal is to keep them forgiven. And you'll see over and over in this passage and all, all through Leviticus... I don't know how many times, I have to go back and count how many times it says their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be forgiven. Over and over, he's maintaining a relationship with them through these offerings that all point to the Lord Jesus Christ because God loves to restore us. He wants us to walk with him in a great way. So we're going to jump into this and and look at this unchanging grace of God and, and understand how he provided a sacrificial system that allowed us to or particularly the Israelites, to walk with him. Even if their sin was private or public, he desired them to gain forgiveness and walk with him. So number one, sins that affect others and, and require a sin offering. And that, we'll see those in the first 13 verses there. But clearly, um, this is not going to cover every public sin, right? As he goes through, there's, there's many of them here. But God chose particular sins. Uh, and they're particular sins that would hurt the nation, That would hurt the community of Israel as they sought to be different than the pagan nations around. So he selected certain sins that there were offerings for. So these commands show that God desired his people to live in community. Now we'll break down some of these. Number one, A under number one. The sin of failing to bear a truthful witness. Look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Now if a person sins after hearing a public adjuration to testify when he is witness, whether he has seen it or otherwise known if he does not tell it then he will bear his guilt well first off you see things about God in these commands one God desires truth that's one of his great attributes right if you study the attributes of God you're going to get God is true thank you glad somebody's <laughs> awake out there I know we're in Leviticus, come on. I'm trying to make it exciting. Uh, God loves truth. He is truth, right? So, so in every aspect, he's after truth. And here he desires people to speak truth. But he also requires people to make truth known. Meaning stand for what is true. And these, and, excuse me, as you think about the Israelites, in, in this close living that they were in, they're a mobile people that are moving around, living in tents, sharing a lot of ground together. He didn't even want the Israelites to, to cover up a lie. He, he knew that would hurt them as a nation. It would hurt them individually, and it would hurt them publicly. And so they were responsible to make truth known. And you see that in this command right off the bat. And this, of course, is an offering that's coming for not standing for the truth. Notice it said, if he does not tell it, then he would bear the guilt, um, bear his guilt. It was a responsibility of whoever witnessed a sinful matter to tell the truth about it. Boy, there's a novel idea today, right? And if they, if they refused it, God says right here, that the guilt of that will be upon them. I remember not too long ago, I don't watch the news a lot, but I was watching the news and there was someone who was shot in an intersection with full of people in Orlando. And the police came on the TV and they said not one person would tell us who did it, though they all saw it. Now, you're never going to have a community of people if you're not going to deal with truth. You're not going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, I know who did that. Your whole society is going to fall apart. It's going to cave, and so God knew how important this was, and, and lying, so thats all. not lie, I mean, you know, don't lie, I mean, th- th- those are not, those are things that God has commanded us to, but here it's showing that there needs to be a sacrifice, this because if you don't stand for the truth, it's really set you at odds with the God of truth, right? So in Israel, all God's people were to be involved with justice. They wanted justice. God wanted the nation together to be a part of the justice process. And to knowingly not witness, or, or, or worse, bear a false witness, was sin to God. And this was seen in, as a very sinful act of silence. That's what he's talking about. A sinful act of silence. Not speaking up when you know something is wrong. God sees that as sin, and it publicly destroys the community And it breaks fellowship with God. Now, it's easy to see that this sin continues um, in a nation like ours, but it also continues in the church. Because many churches, I, I was just watching a podcast with Tom Askell, who was just here, and they were discussing the effects of lack of church discipline in the church today. And It really comes back to a lot of this. Nobody wants to say, well, I see my brother in sin and I lovingly care enough about his soul and his relationship with God to go to him. And so they never deal with that. So churches just come, they hear preaching and singing and they go and there's no community relationship because they're so afraid that to deal with anything that they would hurt somebody or run somebody off or something would would go wrong in that process or they don't want to be a part of that, the church begins to fall into decay in so many ways. See, all through the Bible we see, quote, church discipline. Go deal with this. God God delights when we're right with him as a people, right? And even God's people, I mean, we will fail to do things God's way, but he gives us a process of restoration. He desires purity among his people. Now, even even a greater offense applies to maybe, maybe this. Think about this, the testimony or the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ by those who personally know him. let me make some application here. It isn't enough to maybe not actively deny Jesus. I've never denied Jesus. But what about never standing or speaking truth about him to anyone? I've had people in my ministry through the years come and say, Pastor, I've never witnessed to somebody, and I'm ashamed to tell you. I've never shared Christ. I've never stood up for him. I've never spoken the gospel to someone. See, I think that's very practical here. God wants truth spoken, and he wants it stood up and defended. Speak the truth in love, Paul reminds us. That's that's hard to do for some people. We've got to work on that. But we need to speak the truth in love. We need to defend our Savior. You say, I never denied him, but have you ever defended him? Have you ever said, that's not Jesus, let me tell you about him? These are important things. B, the sin of unconfessed impurities that affect God's people. When in these next two verses, he gets into if a person touches something unclean, whether it's a carcass or a beast or, or something like that or something, swarming things, he gives a list of things, not a complete list, but a partial list, but, but they knew what he was talking about. And then verse 3, if he touches anything that comes from the uncleanness of a human, right? And that could be all kinds of things. I'm glad he doesn't go into the detail here. Let me tell you this, what he's trying to teach is sin doesn't stay isolated. I mean, just like we know that certain flus and COVIDs and different like, things can spread, so does sin. It spreads very well. And so sin's goal is just to pollute everything. And I think that's the idea here. So the sin of unconfessed impurities that affects God's people. And so sin's goal is to pollute. It's to get into the water of truth and pollute it. That's, that's the goal of Satan. So verse 2, there is a display here in this verse of a progression of greater to smaller. <laughs> and I think what God's goal is here is to show that any degree of pollution is an offense to God. If you pollute truth, if you allow impurities in, it's a sin. He doesn't want his people dealing with impurities. He wants us to be pure before him and right before him. So he provides an offering. He provides a sacrifice to come to regain that purity in the Old Testament. Now, we know we can be pure. We're pure positionally, right? We're holy positionally. But we do struggle with our with our unredeemed humanness about us at times, right? And we need to wash our feet um, with the grace of Christ and those things again from time to time. But if we don't, if we continue to dredge around in this world, we never never take time to confess and repent of sins, we start to, that impurity starts to work, up, work our way up from our boots up to our body. And so there's there's a way to become the God. And what we think God is doing here is He's saying, look, from the smallest secrets that can bring impurity into your worship and into your family, I don't want that to pollute my community, and it'll start with you and it'll move to others. Because if a wife has impurity or a husband has impurities, it'll move to the family, it'll move from them, it'll move to the children, and it'll move to the church. See why confession of sin, repentance of sin is so important. You go, know, oh, it's just my sin. No, it isn't. It's gonna move. And it's going to get involved in people's life. Psalms 90 verse 8 says, You have placed our iniquity before you. And listen to this. Our secret sin in the light of your presence. See, I think, you know, oh, nobody knows what I'm looking at or doing. But all of it's in front of God. David said in his great confession, My sin was against you and you alone. You saw everything I did. And and so these impurities hurt the nation of Israel. God didn't want them to be living in impurities. He wanted them to walk together and walk personally with him so he provided a sacrifice, he provided an offering so they could walk with him. Notice in verse 3, it does not share the multitude of of many ways you could be unclean um, from touching all kinds of things connected to humanity, but what it's portraying is more the idea of unconsciously, the sinfulness of the soul may have sin there, may have a residue of pollution, and it's breaking the fellowship of him, of this person with God, and he desires. He wants that to be healed. And sometimes our understanding of a sin may come about because a dear brother or sister just discerns the evil and sees it within us and comes to us, right? And you go, well, that's Matthew 18. Yes, but there's a lot of verses. One of the verses I have written in my Bible next to Matthew 18 is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It says this. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. And then it says this. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, a lot of times, church... Church what happens all the time, right? We, we see each other in sin, we come and talk to each other. But you do it in a way that you're there to encourage that brother or that sister to say, hey, let's, let's not let sin harden us. Can I help you with this? Can I walk with you? Can I spend some time praying? Can we get into a Bible study? So it doesn't harden. And, and once we are aware of that sin, we should desire the right relationship with God and to be right with him. Now we have the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ at any time we can confess our sins because Christ has died for the past present and we can repent of those in turn. Here in the Old Testament God gave a way to regain that fellowship, regain that restoration that he desired. See the sin of thoughtless commitment to God. The sin of thoughtless commitment to God verses 4 and 5. Where if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good In whatever matter, a man may speak thoughtlessly with his oath. And it is is hidden from him. Then he comes to know it. He will be guilty of one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty of one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Now, the Hebrew language here is is a little bit tricky, but I was working on it this week. And it it gives the idea of a person who... um, thoughtlessly, we get the word babble, babbling out of it, thoughtlessly babbles with their lips and carelessly gives a vow, right? They didn't put, they didn't put their heart into it. They were, they were not thinking of God. They didn't do it in a worship way, so they carelessly babbled some vow to God is the idea here. And uh, God is condemning the... Uh, the doing of what is right outwardly when the heart is careless. I think that's what he's trying to say here in this. He's condemning that, oh, i okay, got to go take my sacrifice there, you know. Get this done. Run over there and drain the blood and do all this stuff. But there's no heart in it, right? So he's condemning, he's condemning that vow that I'm going to do these things. So a careless promise was still a promise to the Lord. I think that's what he's saying. I mean, that's true today, right? Your wedding vows, your, your vows, your commitment to the Lord in many ways. I'll talk about that in a minute. There's still a promise to the Lord, and we need to keep those promises. And when we don't, we need to get right with God. And if they didn't, in Israel here, there was a sin offering, so they could get right with God. And as soon as the person was aware of it, you notice in verse 4 and 5 there, as soon as he was aware of that broken vow, they were to repent. And, they were, and God would give them forgiveness. You see it in the text. He would forgive them. Now, even on this side of the cross, it's common for Christians to make promises or vows but not keep them, right? And biblical truth reveals such sin. We see it in the Bible. And we're supposed to confess and repent because the blood of Jesus Christ has covered our sins. We should confess and repent of those sins. But, but yet sometimes we make vows and we don't keep them. I thought about a few of them. Today, you could add some of these, but we'll see how they fit with you. Maybe you made a commitment to be in the Word more. Some along the line, the line, you heard a sermon, you read your Bible, you were in a BFG, or in a discipleship group, or you were in something, and you said, you know, I'm going to really commit to reading my Bible. And you didn't keep it. You were careless in your vow to God. Or, or maybe you were committed to pray more often. You were going to spend more time in prayer. I'm, I'm very careful you will not hear me too often say, you know, commit to an hour of prayer. Um, I think you should pray without ceasing. I think you should always be one prayer away from talking to God because your life is right with Him. And that causes you to talk to Him all the time about a lot of things. But maybe you have made a commitment to pray more. Maybe you're not praying at all. Maybe you're just going through life making your decisions on your own and you have not sought the wisdom of God through prayer and the Word and you've not made that commitment. Maybe you said, out, when someone says... You know, something's wrong with them, and you say, Well, I'll pray for you. But you don't. I mean, I had to learn to say, Let me stop right now and pray for you. Or I'll get a text from somebody and I'll stop. And I have to do it because I'm so I am busy. I got a lot of things going on, just like you. And I go, oh, oh, I never did pray for that person. So I don't want to break that vow that I would pray for them. I tell them I'm going to pray for them. And I need to pray for them. Um, you're, maybe you're committed to discipleship and, or disciple others, and yet you haven't done it. Maybe you haven't gotten soul care or DTPs. And, or taking advantage of partners or anything like that, and you know you need to do that. And you said you were going to do it, but you haven't done it. Maybe you said, "I'm going to witness more." Maybe earlier in this sermon, and I talked about that you've never bore witness of Jesus Christ to somebody, and you never witnessed. And you said you were, but you don't do it. You don't work at it. You don't go to Bobby's, you know, personal evangelism class and uh, trying to learn more how to do that. You haven't taken advantage of that. See, we do this all the time. Maybe you said, I'm going to give more, right? You started looking at the Bible, and the the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, and and we're to give a portion of the things he's given to us back to him in an act of worship, and you just give little. But you said you were going to. I mean, it could be purity, commitment to the Spirit. I mean, there's so many different things we could talk about here. But often, these vows and commitments are legitimate, right? You meant it from your heart, and the Spirit maybe stirred you through hearing the Word of God, and yet you didn't keep your vow. And God has not struck you dead. In fact, He reminds you, son or daughter, I sent my son to die for your lack of commitment. And it's the gospel that always brings us around, isn't it? Isn't it the gospel that always brings us back to where we need to be? as new, t- new Covenant Christians. And so here we come back to it and, and, and we go, oh Lord, I want to personally and publicly bless you and obey you, and, and when that repentance comes and we're restored back to what God wants, we have joy again. And that affects the community. When people are right with God, it affects the community of believers. It just does, and that's why it's so important every one of us have this unique, very important role of walking with the lord and we're all body parts to do those things d the response of the awareness of sin um i don't want to read 6 through 13 Um, i want to give you some highlights of it um it's it's a little bit reminding us a lot of the other guilt offerings what takes place but let me just give you some thoughts from from this response there's this desire now to bring a guilt offering um, and he's brought up three or four things that we should be aware of, that the Israelites should be aware of. And so now there's this response to this guilt offering. And the offering always follows, God designed, always followed confession and repentance and then the offering. The offering itself was not desired to be the confession and the repentance, in a sense. Because that's what happens. Well, you know, I'm not walking with God, so I'll go to church on Sunday. <laughs> that's, that's not confession and repentance. I'll read my Bible, maybe God will be happy with you. That's not confession or repentance. So now he's, he, he brings into this is this response to what God has done, right? And otherwise, the, it's just a mere outward duty and there's no delight in a God that you want to be right. Lord, I am going to now worship you thank you for forgiving me for my lack of commitment breaking my vow to you thank you for forgiving me God I desire to be with the brothers and sisters this week I desire to be back in my word in your word so forgiveness is never attained through just some simple procedure right like I'm, I do this I get that and that's what the sin of the nation uh, really turned out to be right they would burn their babies to Baal and then go to temple to so no heart And it's just a constant misuse of grace. And as you follow the nation of Israel around, this gracious way to be right with God became an abuse of grace. They would still offer their sacrifices and bow down to Ashtaroth. It just became an abuse of grace. It can be a misuse of truth, too. You can misapply truth and use truth to try to crutch up your life. And we see things probably in the New Testament world with some of the things, the gifts to the church, like communion, like the Lord's table. I think for years and years, many churches, I uh, you know, thank the Lord not this one, I, I pray, but, but think about this, how many churches mishandle communion. And it turns into some kind of penance time. That's not what communion is about, and we've learned that here. We've learned through the years that this is an act of remembrance, a worship of remembrance of what God does. It's really a celebration in a lot of ways, and it's not that God doesn't use it at times to convict sin. The the goal was to worship him. Baptism, too. Baptism, uh, (laughs) I've known too many moms that come in, well, I'm just thankful my son's finally baptized. Well, yeah, I'm glad he didn't die. And then they start thinking, well, wait a minute, He's, he's catching on to something. That baptism water didn't get you in Gideon, heaven. <laughs> Salvation by Jesus Christ got him into heaven. And so, so mem- there's a misuse of grace in areas. And, and so God, God wants us to have this beautiful relationship with him unhindered, and he always is providing ways. But just like the Israelites turn to the guilt offering, so New Testament covenant Christians turn to the final offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be guilty of something. There's nothing wrong with the word guilt here. You may have sinned and trespassed against God. Those are good words. But there is a way out. We come to God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at any time to find restored fellowship with him. In the case of the Israelites, if you study this, they they offered these innocent substitutes. You'll see in the text as you look down through 6 through 13, they could bring a female lamb, they could bring turtle doves, or young pigeons or even grain, depending on their ac- economic status here. You can see that in the text. But regardless of one sacrificing and their financial position, blood was brought to the altar. Because blood, without it, there is what? No forgiveness or remissions of sin. And so here it's interesting, one of the, one of the unique things about this is remember on the other offerings, they would put the blood on the horns of the altar? This one they put blood on the side of the altar. I wasn't sure, so I read quite a few people on this, and the consensus that I found was that um, it was very public. Those looking on could see the blood dripping down the side of that altar, and they would know that somebody came that was guilty of abuse of what God had said, and they want to be right with Him. You could see that. And God wanted that clear so the nation would be encouraged to repentance it was done i think for public awareness that they would move forward with god but in the center of all of this sacrifice is the priest right you'll see that in here they're to come and bring it to the priest and and again we'll talk about them the next lesson because it's going to be the installation of the priesthood but we have in the new testament such clear teaching of the greater priest and the greater sacrifice and again, as you look at the priest in this, and you look at the sacrifice, the priest is coming before God, bringing, bringing in this blood offering before God. The sacrifice is in, innocent, so both of them point to the Lord. And we see this in Genesis 22, right, when Abraham's offering Isaac. We see so many relationships to the triune God in that. You know, Isaac's the offering, and then all of a sudden it's the ram that's the offering, and, and you start to see this greater picture that's coming out of that they're all pointing to the lord jesus christ and i think as you study this you realize that the the priesthood the sacrifice is all pointing towards the Lord lord jesus christ and it keeps us humble when we come to this but look at the end of verse 13 the result of doing things god's way is the sinner is forgiven over and over you find in leviticus the word forgiven over and over, as I read through my, my reading, personal reading, and then as I'm going through it, I'm marking every time, circling, highlighting in my Bible every time it says, "He'll be forgiven, or she'll be forgiven in Leviticus.' changing my view of Leviticus as I read through this, and I'm finding great worship there. For the true child of God, even in the Old Testament here, they understood the grace of God, and they knew they were undeserving. But they praise the Lord. One of the things you see as you study your Old Testament, you'll find men and women in the Bible who really genuinely offered sacrifices. They'll say things they love the court of the Lord, they love his temple, they love to bring sacrifices to the Lord. So when you read that in the Psalms and in different places, some of the kings did this and so forth, when you read that, you go, that person desired to be right with God. That person had a right, contrite, humble heart to God. And I, I find great encouragement. As I say a little bit, because I'm, I'm, I'm getting more excited about the Old Testament because I start seeing this through where this person or that person, this woman or this man really loved the tabernacle. They loved the temple of God. They loved the sacrifices that God had given them. So we see this unchanging God exhibiting grace to sinners throughout it. And God has always granted forgiveness full and immediate. I want I want to make sure you know this. That sin, for that sin that this person brought, God forgave them full and immediate. Now we know they had to repeat it because the finished lamb, the final lamb wasn't there yet, but at that point when that sinner offered that sacrifice, it was full and immediate. They were forgiven. Without delay. Come back into fellowship with me, God was saying to that, that Israelite. And I think that's the, the beautiful thing today. But unfortunately, even in the New Testament, there is some abuse of grace, right? We, sometimes we abuse that and then our consciences get lulled in spiritual sleep. Don't you love Isaiah when he finally gets in the presence of God, right? And he's in the temple of God and the train is floating around and there's all these beings crying out, "Holy, holy," And in the end he says, "Woe is me, for I am ruined." He doesn't forget who He is." And he reminds himself, "I am of unclean lips, I live among a people with unclean lips, and I've seen God, and I'm not going to make it through this if he doesn't show His grace to me." And of course, the Lord does. What a beautiful teaching. One more, before I go to that last point, look at first John chapter two, because I'm always thinking New covenant, New Testament, as I look at this. Where would I support this in the New, in the New Testament? So look at First John chapter 2. You know this passage, don't you? God gives us the ability to be right with him fully. <laughs> My little children, chapter 2 verse 1 of First John, I'm writing to these things to you so that you may not sin, Isn't that great? I think that's just a great theme of the Bible. He writes us this truth so we don't sin. He doesn't want his children to sin. He wants this full fellowship with us. And if anyone sins, because we are going to, we have an advocate with the Father. But that's... That's that statement of this sacrificial lamb, this pigeon, this turtle dove, this grain offering. He is that advocate, right? But he's the final one. He's our advocate. He comes before the Father on our behalf. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, meaning there's nothing wrong with his. He doesn't need to repeat it because it's perfect. And then he says in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation of of our sins, God, uh, Christ delivers full satisfaction on our behalf to God. And not for ours only. Look how the extent, the greatness of the sacrifice to the whole world. And here it's certainly not universalism as some people take. It's talking about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that <laughs> come to Jesus Christ. It's just not Americans who get forgiven. <laughs> it's everybody. All the elect. Receive this advocating work of the Son who is perfect on our behalf. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Isn't it fascinating? He drops to that point next. We go, oh man, we got an advocate. <laughs> I'm good. I don't have to worry about confession or repentance anymore. And he goes, Well, whoa. Whoa. To show that you believe this, to show that this is true in your life, that you have this right relationship through Jesus Christ, the people who actually believe this strive by the Spirit's help to keep commandments. You go, with the ten? Well, yeah, those are all funneled into the New Testament, but, man, there's just commandments all through the Bible, isn't there? You think not stealing is probably still a good idea? Not committing adultery? You think that's a pretty good idea? I mean husbands love their wives wives submit to their husbands children obey their parents employees obey their masters or their employers I mean those are all good commands right so there's a love for Christ for his propitiatory work in our life that drives us to keep his commandments verse 4 the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandment uh oh this is getting a little thick here is a liar (laughs) and the truth is not in him now we're talking about certainly about consistency here right This person consistently says, oh, well, I'm perfect. I don't have any problems here. I don't need a sin offering is really what this is saying. I don't need Leviticus 5 in the New Testament side of this scene in Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible says he's a liar and he has no truth in him. That means God's not in him. The spirit of God is called the spirit of truth. And he has no truth in him, says he has no spirit in him. Do you see the connection? Verse 6, excuse me, verse verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Isn't that great? You can know you have the love of God in you because you desire to walk with him. By By this we know that we are in him. There's that union with Jesus Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walks. So look, this isn't an abuse of grace. This is living because of grace. Does that make sense? I mean, that should make sense to us, Christian. Because of grace, it motivates my life. And, And the Spirit of God loves the things of Christ, right? Loves obedience. Loves love and joy and peace and patience and all those things. He loves those things. So the Spirit of God is in us, then truth is in us, then walk comes out of us. And the older we get in the faith, the more we practice walking with the Lord from a from a desire, from what he's done, it becomes a pattern now in our life, and sin is shorter. We deal with sin so much faster as we grow in the Lord, because we will sin. Go back to Leviticus with me, chapter five. Second point: the private sin sins that require a guilt or trespass offering. Depending on what version you have, you might have in here a guilt or trespass offering. They're both very good words and. Words that, that we understand in, that come out of the Hebrew here. Well, this guilt or trespass offering here that now he begins to go in um, covers sins against the Lord, Lord's holy things, right? The things that he has set apart. And it, and it really points to unfaithfulness to God himself as he deals with this. He wants to point out that there's times his people are unfaithful to him and unfaithful to what he set apart. I mean, when you study this, you go, well, you're dead if you do this. If you, if you disgrace the tabernacle or disgrace things that he has set apart, nope, you know what he does? He provides an offering so you can be back with him. Don't tell me he is not gracious in the Old Testament. People tell, well, the Old Testament, there's just no grace in the Old Testament. We love the New Testament because it's full of grace. Go, what Old Testament are you reading? Study. And you see God's grace all through this. I, just, I got overwhelmed with this. I said, wow, this is a terrible offense to profane the holy things of God, and yet he provides a way right back to him. Isn't that beautiful? Even though sin outwardly was committed against these holy things, and even though it's often even against God's people, he has given a way back, whether it's privately done or publicly done. And so he wants us to understand that he has grace here. Look at A, um, sins against the holy things of God, 14 through 19. Again, I won't read all of this um, language that's in here, but you see in verse 14 something that um, stands out to us. Verse 14 and 15, um, excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 14 um, says here, and I, oh, I skipped a part of my notes that I wanted to hitchhike on this. Notice it says in verse 14, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now I just wanted to highlight just this a little bit. Somewhere along the line here, the Lord speaks and Moses is in what was called the 10 of meetings. Now he's in the, he's in the courtyard of the tabernacle here and God is speaking to him, but he's probably silent for a little while. Because Moses was writing down stuff. I don't know. There could be days in between this. We don't know how long this was. But then all of a sudden, can you imagine Moses? This is a chilling. All of a sudden, God starts to speak again. He's like, I want you to chew on that for a little bit. I want you to see my grace. I want you to teach the people there's a way back to me, to have a right relationship with me. I want you to take care of that. And then all of a sudden, he begins to speak again. And I don't, again, I don't know the time frame, but it's, it's fascinating. Verse 15, if a person acts unfaithfully, and sins intentionally against the holy things, uh, the, the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring a guilt offering. And he goes into a ram and all of this stuff now again. So the sin would be revealed, right? So God reveals sin through his commands here. And the one who disregards it is, is set apart from God in a, in a fellowship sense, right? And, and it would include not only the tabernacle furniture, right? Um, here, But it would also, and you go, well, what what are these holy things that belong to the Lord? Well, remember he said earlier, we've looked at it, bring the first fruits to me. Those things are holy. I want those first things, firstlings, we call them. I want the first of your livestock. I want the first of your fruit. I want your firstborn. So those things were holy to the Lord. And you said, well, I don't want to give you my firstborn. (laughs) Or man, that first apple, I don't want to give to you, Lord. (laughs) And you didn't think, or maybe, as the Bible says, you intentionally did your harvest. And somewhere along the line, you already were processing that. You go, oh, man, I forgot to give that to the Lord. And so he wants a way back for you in it. And, and so whether it's intentionally or on purpose, these things belong to the Lord. And if an Israelite failed to handle these things correctly, they were to make atonement for them. And there's, and there's kind of a repayment type of uh, offering, a gracious offering given in this Sin offering or trespass offering, And notice in verse 16, as you drop down, the sinners to make restitution of this, right? When the holy things had been dishonored in some way, uh, just a mere offering wasn't enough because whatever was given without the right heart or not given, now there was a loss of that, right? So God had set up a system throughout Israel with priests and those families of priests and and many of this stuff went to feed their families and and there was a a really well built in welfare system within Israel to take care of poor and so forth and all that. But because you didn't care about the holy things of God, somebody suffered for it. (laughs) I think that's what he's doing here. And so he says, look, God requires these Israelites to make restitution by paying back what was lost. And then notice what he does. He adds 20% on it. One fifth. Now, All of this is because when you don't give to what God belongs to him, it's robbery. Look at at Malachi, the last minor prophet of the Old Testament. If you're Italian, you can call him Malachi. Um, Choose your guy, but here. But look at Malachi chapter 3. This was a problem in the nation. And and as I study these offerings, I keep thinking about different places and coming upon different places where I see these offerings given with right hearts, and then I see these offerings rejected of God and not given to Him. Malachi chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 6, therefore it will be night to you without vision and darkness for you without divination, and the sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. And do I have the right passage? I'm in Micah. See, i got the wrong Italian guy. I knew it wasn't right. I'm looking at it going, did you put this in your notes, Scott? Malachi. I'm getting there. My pages are sticky. Malachi 3, here we go, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Isn't that good? The Lord doesn't consume them. That's why God sells a roll for Israel. He doesn't consume them, though they deserve it. Though we deserve to be consumed, He doesn't do it. Because He doesn't change. He holds His promises. Verse 7, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statues. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then He goes on to this, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, somewhere along the line, they quit seeing the things of God as holy. The gathering of the flock, well, I know we're supposed to go to Shechem, but I don't think I'm going to go this year. You know, the business is busy. I just don't think I'm going to be involved in that. Yeah, we had a child. You know, I never did get that child dedicated at the temple. I never did give him. Maybe we'll try it with the second one, if we can remember. Well, this is what happens when you serve other gods, when when things pull into your life and and God isn't central to you. This is what happens. The whole nation was robbing him. So verse 10, he says, Bring in the whole tithe into the storehouse. You've been cheating me. You've been robbing me. I've not been giving me a portion back what I've given to you so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out you a blessing until it overflows. Now, according to the prosperity gospel, people run with this. It's actually a rebuke. I mean, people all the time say, oh, God, bless my business, bless this, bless that. and you, Well, give them something to bless, right? Give them some obedience to bless, follow God. Again, as you turn back to our text in Leviticus, um, notice again I'll, the important words at the end of verse 16. When I come to this, I keep seeing these and they're underlined and circled in my Bible. And he will be forgiven. I've made restitution, I've come back with you, I have an offering of the flock, this ram in verse 15, I've made restitution, I've given that extra fifth, that 20%, Lord, I've come back because I desire to be right with you, I believe you atone for my sins from the sacrifice, and I know that I'm forgiven, there was a confidence that you could have at least temporarily that you could be forgiven, and I love that. And I think verses 17 through 19, as you start to deal with this, you see the person who sins unintentionally and remains unaware of their faithfulness, and God remains gracious to them throughout it. But it's important to understand that just because we may not be aware of sin, it doesn't mean it's dismissed, and that's what he's after in verses 17 through 19. Now, if a person sins, verse 17, and does anything which the Lord had commanded him not to be done, though he is unaware, he's still guilty. Spurgeon on this passage said this. He said, "If this wasn't in there, listen to what he says. The art of forgiven, for the art of forgetting, would be diligently studied." At <laughs> least Spurgeon could say this stuff. The art of forgetting. Well, sorry, Lord, I haven't given to you in months. To the Lord, you know, I forgot. <laughs> I got to be careful. <laughs> My mind was thinking about it. And then, then he goes on to say this. The ignorance would become desirable inheritance. So people would say, I'm going to desire ignorance. So God says, look, even if you're unaware of your sin, it doesn't mean it's not sin. Because, well, you know, you know there's this passage in Ephesians that says that they were ignorant. Willfully ignorant is the understanding of that, Right? And so, don't make an art of forgetting. You know, you don't go to church much. You're going to make an art of forgiving, forgetting. Because you're not going to be reminded. Of you. Don't read your Bible. You're going to get the art of forgetting going on in your life. Don't pray and talk to your almighty God and confess your sins and turn from them. You will start to create the art of forgetting. So, even sin that was done in ignorance had to be made atonement. And isn't that great that the Lord cares about that? He cares about my my willful sin and he cares about my um, unintentional sin. I guess that's kind of the word that he uses here. And I think this is handled very well in the scriptures. David is, probably handles it as well as any of Psalms chapter 19 verse 12 he says, Who can discern his errors? And then David says this, Acquit me of my hidden faults. Ignorant. And then he doesn't leave off there. David goes on to say, Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So he says, look, there are some ignorant sins in my life I need your forgiveness of. I I should have known. I should have done better. I was ignorant of that. I, I didn't study like I should have. But I want your forgiveness of that, Lord. And again, in here, in the Old Testament, God provided an offering for that. But then there's these presumptuous sins. And, ooh... Those are willful sins, right? We know what God wants us to do, and we did not do it. But David goes on to say, then I will be blameless, right? He knows, he knows what he gets. When he goes to God and confesses his sin and comes his way, and in this time in the Old Testament, that was to bring a lamb, a pigeon, a dove, or grain offering in this sense. He knew the way to have that right relationship to God. To us, it is the same way. We come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament, teaches us the vastness of what God forgives. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcised in your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven, to, forgiven us all of our transgressions. And having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of degrees against us. That's presumptuous sins and hidden sins, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. Praise the Lord. What an amazing thing. Quickly, i got to move here. God takes personally the sin committed against one another. Chapter 6, he's going to go through verse 7 with this guilt offering. So the guilt or trespass offering runs from 14, 514 down through 6, 7. And then he's going to turn to the role of the priesthood. And we'll get into that next time. But again, we find this verse in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. <laughs> and again, there's imagine the silence that would have been in the chamber of God for a while. And the Bible says now he speaks again. And all of a sudden, that voice chilling to think about that. But look at 2 and 3. He says, when a person sins or acts unfaithful against the Lord and deceives his companion in regards to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery or if it was extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sinned in a way to any one of these things as a man may do. Now he's into a new subject here, isn't he? He's in to understand that there's this person that acts unfaithfully. Notice, first of all, it's a clear offense against God when you lie or cheat or uh, take something that doesn't belong to you or, or uh, uh, ra, um, deceive your companion. Um, it's, it's really talking about taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, it could be financial. It could be something else. And so this section just clearly shows this is an offense against God. And you see in verse 2 that it requires another guilt offering. This thing can be forgiven. And so the sin of lying, the sin of deception, the sin of unfaithfulness to God that destroys the community, uh, the, the security of the community. When sin is in our families or in our church, it starts to destroy our security in the Lord, right? Sin always breaks up that stuff. But here God says, look, there's a way to come to me. And, and let, me, let me just give you some examples where we see this with godly people in the Bible. Do you remember the prophet who had the axe and he was chopping down some trees and the axe head fell off and went into the Jordan, I think it was? You remember that? Elisha was the prophet. He calls Elisha and he says, you've got to help me. And what does he say? The axe was what? Borrowed. He was bothered by the fact that he was not going to be able to go back to that person because he borrowed that axe. He wanted to be right with that person. And, of course, Elijah lights, well, you, you know, axes floating, and, well, you know, amazing things, right? So, so we, we see godly people in the Old Testament concerned with these commands. They want to be right with God. I think the problem with today's church is a lot of people don't want to be right with God. They want, they want a designer God, don't they? Accept me the way I want to be. You accept me the way I come, not the way God wants us to come. And so there's huge tension within the American church right now. You know, in... I mean, everything from CRT to social justice to homosexuality to gender, all of that stuff's coming and saying, God, we don't want to come your way, we want to come our way, and you need to accept it. And it's sad. And the American church isn't what it used to be anymore. that's why we have to stand for truth and be honest. And when we sin, knowingly or unknowingly, we've got to pray that God exposes this. Now, this kind of theft... And lying shows extreme selfishness, doesn't it? Probably we've all had a guy in our life that you know if he borrows something, you're going to have to go back to his house and get it. Don't be that guy. <laughs> and you should when you lend something to him. I mean, you should, you should have the right heart to lend that. But you just don't want to be that guy. And here he's addressing that because it causes division. It causes tension between people in the community. Remember, they're all out of camp out together. And so even the owner of the item, um, he may never miss it. God says, be faithful and take care of this stuff. And see, the Lord's teaching us um, not to build our happiness on on the loss or sorrow of something else. Well, I found something. I I think this just takes on the, you know, finders, you know, how does that say go? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I think God's saying, you find it, go find whose it is. (laughs) Well, you know, they didn't show up and... I hid it in my backyard. <laughs> no, no, it's the whole idea that we have happiness to restore something to something that was lost. God restored us who were lost. This is, this is the gospel kind of lived out, right? Gospel 101 in our daily lives. And again, you see the graciousness of God watching over his nation. He knows that these selfish people, this unholy person, even in an unintentional sin, will will abuse grace and they won't have what God wants them to have within the family of God, this this nation here. And I think it's true for us as well as Christians. Because Christ restores what was taken away for us, right? He restores this taken away relationship with God. He brings us back who were once enemies and now we're part of his family. And so this love for God and the Savior motivates obedience. 1 John 4, 10 through 11 says this, This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And send his son to be a propitiation for us. Beloved, if God so loves us, then it says this. We ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. And so we give back. Verses 4 through 5, again, talk about um, how to make restitution. Again, I'm out of time here. Um, But it's an understanding of sin and guilt and restoration. How does God want us to do it? And you go, well, man, how has this worked? Go read, I think, Luke 19, and go read Zacchaeus. The wee little man, remember him? Climbs up in a second more tree so he can see God, see Jesus Christ. He meets Jesus Christ. There's clearly a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, I've been unjust. I've stole people's stuff. I'm going to give back half of all that I have. And then he says, not two times, because this is, here it's 20%, so it's, it's double the tithe is what's told to give back. He says, I will give four times back. Man, the Lord had gripped Zacchaeus' heart. And he said, I'm making restitution. I'm going to be right. And he was, a, he was a little thief, wasn't he? He was stealing people's money through taxation. And the Lord forgave him, and it motivated him to give back. And so here they're told to give back this double tithe. And really it's a double acknowledgement. I was wrong, Lord. I was wrong. Maybe we need to say it twice. I was wrong, Lord. No, I was wrong, Lord. I was wrong, Lord. I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? Make restitution with people and with God. So God desires his holy character to be on display of his people. And when sin's revealed, confess it. Matthew chapter 5 says, if you're presenting your offering to the altar and you remember your brother has something to get you, go to him, leave the offering, get it right. Be reconciled to your brother. Look at verse 6 to 7 speeding along because I should be done now. 6 to 7. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord. And so I believe this guilt offering was for those who were broken, even over their presumptuous sins and their hidden sins. And this law, in this offering system, was not designed for hard-hearted people. It wasn't designed for those who were going to abuse grace. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was designed for those who wanted to confess and repent, and they long for right fellowship with God. That's what it's designed for. And if you got away from that, then it became an abuse of grace. And same thing today. If you try to have a little relationship with Jesus and go to church and drop a few coins in the fountain and whatever else, but you're really not there to be right with God, it's an abuse of grace. And God wants us to use his sacrificial system for the New Testament, that's Jesus, to be right with him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. But if we say we don't have sin, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And then one more verse, just the opposite of that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice. Amen? Father, thanks for our time in the Word. Go goes by so fast, Lord. Thanks for Leviticus. Thanks for teaching me so much through this, Lord. Um, we thank you that you love to restore relationship with your children. Lord, thanks for the grace that you show us daily. May we live by that and live by its motivation. In Jesus' name, amen.